We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1 to 14. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord your God, Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, and on the high mountains, and on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, and dash in pieces their pillars, and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and put his habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that, that we um, are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. But when you go into the, over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is, in, that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any other place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you should do all that I am commanding you. Thanks, Sam. Uh, let's pray as we come to this part of God's Word and ask for His help. Heavenly Father, thank you that all of your Word is useful for pointing us to the Lord Jesus and teaching, training, rebuking and correcting us, equipping us to live as your people. Please help us to understand this part of your Word and Lord, use it to grow us as your people in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Did you know that Christians are meant to be weird? Christians are meant to be weird. Now, when I say weird, I don't mean creepy or being into strange things. I don't mean wearing odd clothes or speaking in a holier-than-thou voice all the time. I'm talking about lives that are weird in a sinful and broken world. A world where it's normal to look out for number one first, to maximise your own pleasure, to live as if you rule your own life, to live as if this life is all there is. But we're meant to live differently. 
We're meant to live lives that show that we've been graciously saved by God. Lives that point to Jesus is our sure and certain hope. Lives that love God and love others because this life is not all there, there is. Lives that are weird. And it's actually a good thing when this happens, right? Like when Christians are caring for the sick and dying at their own personal risk, campaigning against the slave trade, hiding Jews in their homes to keep them safe. It's good when it happens. And yet it's a real shame when it doesn't. When Christians just live like everyone else, when they mistreat slaves or make war to line their own pockets or just as greedy and selfish as everyone else. See, Christians are meant to be weird, to live differently. And actually, that's been true of God's people since the very beginning. That's really Moses' big thing here in chapter tw- chapters 12 to 16 of Deuteronomy. Remember, God's people, they're about to go into the land that God's given them. Moses sits them down to tell them how they should live as God's people in God's land. He's laying out for them the good life, a loving life with the living God. We've seen that this includes loving God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and flowing from this, loving others too. And now, from chapter 12... Moses starts laying out the nitty-gritty of what this love for God and love for others is going to look like. Starting here with the people learning to love God. What does that actually mean in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of life? Well, we're going to see that for the Israelites and for us. Because God has saved us, we live different, holy lives that remember and rejoice in his rescue and that reflect his holiness. God's people, they're meant to live different in every part of their lives, different by being holy and different by remembering and rejoicing in God's rescue. Uh, We're going to skim through these chapters. We're going to see that at every point uh, that God's people are meant to live different. But before we do, let me just say something about the word holy. God's people are meant to live holy lives. It comes up over and over again, but that's a very churchy word, isn't it? What does that actually mean? Well, the word holy, it simply means set apart, separate, different. It starts with God. As a creator, he is separate from his creation. Set apart, utterly different. He doesn't depend on us to live. He doesn't need his creation. You can't touch God by touching the grass or the trees or seeing the stars. God made these things so they reflect who he is, but he is separate from them. And God is also separate from evil. There's no sin in God. Nothing untoward or disgusting or horrible. And that means that there's that doesn't mean that there aren't things about God that we will find confronting. Of course there will be. But in all that, he's perfectly good. He's holy, he's separate from any evil or sin. And God's people are called to be holy because we've been rescued by this holy God to be his people. We live in relationship with him. 
We don't be separate from creation like God is, but we are to be separate from sin, to be set apart, to live in a way that reflects our holy God, to live different. So when you hear the word holy, think different. Think set apart. Think separate from sin. We're going to work through these chapters pretty quickly. So let me encourage you, follow along as we go in your own Bible. If you don't have one, you'll probably see a black Bible around you somewhere. Uh, that would be, uh, you're welcome to use that. That would be a great way to follow along as we work through these chapters together. First, God's people worship different. The Canaanites who already live in the land, they aren't one unified nation like Israel. They're a bunch of city-states and they worship different gods, heaps of them. So it makes sense that they have places of worship everywhere. On the tops of hills, in groves of trees, everywhere. But God's people are supposed to worship different. Look in verse 3. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their God and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the, the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. Israel is one people who worship the God who is one. We read that back in chapter 6. And so it's fitting that they worship in one place. They're to tear down all the other places. And what they do when they get there, their worship itself, it will look different. Flick down to verse 30. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you. And that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. God's people are different. They don't participate in child sacrifice or temple prostitution or cutting and evil rituals, not like the Canaanites did. Their worship is very different. Actually, their worship is pretty simple. I'm going to duck back to verse 6. They're to go to the one place that God chooses, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you'll present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. It's actually pretty simple. They're to bring all their offerings and their sacrifices to the place God chooses, and there they feast and rejoice together before God. They enjoy together the good things that God has given them. And this kind of worship, this gathering together and rejoicing, it's not just in response to the blessing that God gives his people. Actually, this is part of the blessing that God gives his people. God's people, in rich relationship with each other and with God, 
coming before their God who they love and who has rescued them, to rejoice and celebrate together, to enjoy everything that he's given. Just imagine what that would have been like. It's not stodgy and formal. It's not dour. It's feasting and rejoicing together as God's people in relationship with God. It's something rich and something beautiful. God's one people in relationship with him and each other rejoicing in all that he's given them. God's people worship different. Now, all through Deuteronomy so far, we've seen how this isn't just a book for the Israelites. This is a book for us too. It shows us what God is like. It's a foundation for the whole Old Testament. It points us to Jesus and it shows what it looks like to live for him. And it's true here too. See, our God is one God, worthy of consistent and faithful worship. Loving him and living as his people means coming to him the way that he chooses, not the way that we want. Now, the Israelites failed miserably at this. They did establish one place of worship, but they never properly got rid of the other places. Even King Solomon, who who built the temple in Jerusalem, he also built other places of worship on the hills nearby for his foreign wives. It happened again and again, and so Israel was judged. God sent them into exile, out of the land that he'd given them. Eventually, God did bring them back into the land, graciously saved them, and they took this more seriously, but they still fell short until Jesus. Jesus said that there was a time coming when his people would not worship on this mountain or that mountain, but in spirit and in truth. He said that he would demolish the temple and raise it again in three days. You can read that in John 2. You can read about the spirit and truth in John 4. But he wasn't talking about a physical building. Jesus was talking about his own body. Jesus, God the Son, come to establish a new way to come to God. Not through a building, but through him. See, true worship is not centred on the temple, it's centred on Jesus. Because of his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead, he is the only way for sinful people like you and I to come to God. That's how our worship is different. It's not through a single building. It's not by a pilgrimage. It's not even through a building like this church building. It's through Jesus. Relationship with Jesus by faith is the only way for us to come to God in true worship. And it means all of our lives are spent in worship as we individually and then together as God's people rejoice in what God has done and give back to him out of all that he's given to us. God's people worship different. God's people also love different. If the people are going to love God by living different holy lives, then they need to love God first when people try to lead them astray. That's what chapter 13 is all about. First, Moses warns them about religious leaders who might lead them astray. Look in verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass... And he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. 
You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Notice that impressive, miraculous signs aren't a sure sign that a message is from God. These prophets and these dreamers are trying to lead the people away from following the Lord to worship other gods. But the people are to love different. Not to love and be impressed by showy signs, but to love the Lord with all their heart and soul, to follow him only and to reject these false teachers. In fact, in verse 5, Moses says that these false teachers, religious leaders, should be put to death for seeking to lead God's people astray. But it's Moses' next example that gets really challenging. It's one thing if a religious leader is trying to lead you astray. It's something else if it's someone closer to you. If it's your brother or one of your children or your husband, or your wife, or your closest friend. That's the second example Moses gives. But even then, God's people are to love different, to love the Lord even more than their own family. And like with those false religious leaders, the maximum penalty for this is death. Verse 10, you shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This seems shocking to us. But remember, this is about God's people loving God and living in his land. They are in a covenant relationship with the Lord. He is the God who rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and they're to be faithful to him. To turn away from him and follow other gods is like treason. It is like adultery. It is rejecting the God who has saved them, rejecting the one who is life. This is our God too. Our God who has saved us by sending his own son, Jesus, to die for us, even when we were his enemies. Like Israel, we have failed to love God like this. Often we love other things more. It doesn't take much to lead us astray. But Jesus, God's own son, perfectly follows the law. Even when his family want him to turn away from his mission, he suffers and he dies for our rebellion against God. Through him we can come to God as his reconciled people. See, for us too, following Jesus means loving different. Jesus says following him means loving him even more than our families. You can read it in Luke 14, 26. He is our highest love, our first allegiance. Actually, that will mean that we will love our families better and more fully when we love God first, but never at the cost of following him. For us too, we must obey God rather than men. If religious leaders, even those doing impressive signs and wonders, try to lead us astray from following Jesus, if they teach us things that aren't faithful to God's word, we must not listen to them. Now, just to be crystal clear, we aren't to put anyone to death. (laughs) I'm not just saying that for my own safety. We are not Old Testament Israel. 
These commands don't apply to us like that. But we must love different, always being faithful to the Lord, not being led astray. Third, God's people eat different. Chapter 14, verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. Moses, in the rest of the chapter, he goes on to list all the different animals which are clean and unclean for the Israelites to eat. And this isn't about hygiene. It's not about eating, not eating animals that are unsafe. It's actually about being holy. That's what he just said. It's about being set apart, living different from those around them. This isn't a way to earn God's favour. Eating the right things doesn't make them right with God or make them God's people. It's because they are already God's chosen people, his treasured possession. Now, we could spend all our time trying to figure out the logic of why this animal and not that animal, and we would certainly find some interesting things as we try and figure it out. But at the end of the day, it's actually pretty simple. It's about God's people living differently to the people around them. Being holy, God's set-apart people. And this is actually a great lived illustration of what it looks like to live as God's people. It means being separate from sin, being careful to live differently to those around them because they are God's people. This doesn't just include what they can eat and can't eat. The second half of chapter 14 talks about the tithe. A portion of their harvest is to be set aside as a tithe to the Lord. But notice what they are to do with it. Verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Again, this is no dour, somber ritual. This is about rejoicing together before the Lord. The next verses go on to say that if they live too far away from the central place, they can sell their produce and use the money to buy whatever they desire to eat and drink before God in rejoicing together. They eat different in what they eat and don't eat and the way they save their produce to feast before the Lord in rejoicing every year. This is our God too. The one who calls his people to live different. Even our eating and our drinking is to bring glory to our God and to be done in rejoicing to him. We are no longer under these same food laws. This great lived illustration of the separateness of God's people from the uncleanness of sin, it was always meant to point to Jesus. It's only through faith in him, not through what we eat or not, that we can be clean and come to God. Jesus himself declared all all foods clean in Mark 7, 19. And Peter saw that great vision, remember, of the sheet to show that not only are all foods clean, but all kinds of people can come to God through faith in Jesus. But that doesn't mean our eating doesn't matter. 
1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we should do all to the glory of God. We eat different as God's people. We, don't, we aren't just gluttons who eat to overindulge ourselves. We eat and drink with thanks to God for his glory. And that means being wise and careful with how much we eat. It means not drinking to get drunk. It means being different in the way that we eat and the way that we drink. Not only that, but God's people care different. And the way God's people love God by living different holy lives, it's not just about the worship of the temple. Their love for God flows out in the way that they treat one another, especially those who are in need. It starts with a release of debt every seven years, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbour. He shall not exact it of his neighbour, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. See how built in to the economy of God's people is an opportunity for those who owe money to be free from debt. If you're owed money, you must release it in the seventh year. And don't think that that means you can just not lend money in the sixth year. God's people are to give freely to each other because God has given them much. God has been generous to them and so they should be generous to one another. And this included how they cared for slaves. In the ancient world, slavery it was a way to deal with bankruptcy. It was a temporary measure. And slaves were meant to be treated as brothers, not as property. In the seventh year, the master was to let the slave go free and set him up with everything that he needs to live well. Just as God did for them when he rescued them from Egypt and the Egyptians gave them riches on their way out the door. Remember? The slave could choose to stay, and, and some did, but it was his choice. But notice something in this chapter, in the way that God's people care different. Moses says that if they obey these laws, there will be no poor in the land. Verse 4. There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. But... Right after that, Moses doesn't seem to have very high hopes that they'll be able to pull this off. Straight after this, he starts talking about how to care for those who are poor. And then in verse 11, he says that there will always be poor in the land. See, Moses knows that God's people won't keep God's law. They will need these laws as God's mercy to provide for those in need. Even in their sin. God is showing his care for the vulnerable. Our God, he still cares for the vulnerable and the needy. Even Jesus, God's own son, experiences. He had nowhere to lay his head. And yet he came to proclaim good news. In Luke 4, Jesus declares that his mission is to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. Jesus has come not just to set free economic slaves, but slaves to sin. Through his death and resurrection, he has set us free if we trust in him. And because we've been set free, 
We're free to love others. To love them with practical generosity. To care different by giving to the poor and the needy. But also to care different by caring for people's true spiritual needs. To proclaim the good news of freedom and hope in Jesus. I think we often fall down here. When it comes to caring for and giving generously to the needy. Our job as God's people is about more than caring for physical needs, yes. But it isn't less. God cares for the needy and we should too. We should be looking for opportunities to do so together as a church family. Because God's people care different. And lastly, God's people remember different. This is the last point. We're coming back to where we started, the central place that God has set aside for his people to gather and worship him. God's people are to travel there three times a year to rejoice, to remember and to sacrifice. There are three great festivals when God's people are to gather in that central place. First, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the people remember and reenact how God rescued them from Egypt. Every year the people are to reenact the Passover sacrifice to remember how God rescued them by providing for them the sacrifice of a lamb in their place. How they fled Egypt in haste, rescued from slavery to live as God's people. Second, they're to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. And notice again how this is about remembering God's rescue. Chapter 16, verse 10. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God, with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow who are among you, at the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Just imagine all God's people gathered in one place to offer to the Lord out of all the blessings that he's given them. To rejoice and feast together as God's people in his presence, praising God for what he's done. And to remember together how God has saved them out of Egypt, rescued them to be his people. Then to do it again at the Feast of Booths, at the harvest of olives and grapes, to remember and rejoice in the blessing that the Lord has given his people. This isn't dour. It's not a chore. This is a feast of celebration, of remembering all that the Lord has done. We too gather to remember all that God has done for us. We don't look back to the Exodus and remember that. We look back to the greater rescue, to Jesus' death and resurrection. We gather every Sunday to praise God together and to rejoice in all that he's given. To remember how he has saved us to be his people. To remember at Christmas and Easter every year what God has done for us through Jesus, his son. And God has given us the Lord's Supper. The fulfilment of the Passover, Jesus' body and body broken for us and blood shed for us. This is not a reenactment of Jesus' sacrifice, but we remember it together with this physical, tangible reminder. 
We proclaim that he is coming back. We love God and live different holy lives. It means remembering what together what God has done for us in Jesus, his son. All this is painting a picture of what it looks like to live different as God's people. This is not the way to become his people. But because he has saved us, we love God by living different holy lives that remember and rejoice in his rescue and that reflect in his holiness. All that might sound overwhelming to you. And following Jesus does mean living different in every part of our lives. But God is also gracious to give us his spirit who works in our hearts to change us so we might live different as his people. To follow different. Loving God and following him even above family. To eat different, eating and drinking to bring glory to God. To worship different through Jesus, God's own son. To care different, caring for the poor and needy and proclaiming the message of freedom in Jesus. And to remember different, rejoicing together in God's great grace to us in Jesus. Christians should be weird. We should live different, holy lives. Lives that remember, rejoice in, and reflect the holiness and grace of our God. Let's live like that with his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. The way that it points us to Jesus, shows us what you are like, and what it looks like to live for you. Please help us in every part of our lives, in our worship and our eating and our caring and our loving and our remembering to live different holy lives, lives that reflect you. May our lives show their difference in our workplaces and in our family and amongst our friends and as we go out and as we do all the things that we do. The people might see that we are different because we belong to you that they might ask us the reason for the hope that we have. Lord, where we have fallen short of living different for you, where we have not been separate from sin, we ask that you would forgive us. Thank you for the forgiveness we have in Jesus. Please help us turn away from sin and help us in every part of our lives to live different, holy lives for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.